we're so afraid of dying that we live in fear. And when we're so afraid of dying, we don't fully allow ourselves the boldness of living because we're afraid of dying. Face your death. Look it in the face. Sit with it. I'm going to die. It's inevitable. Because I think when you can live with death close, it clarifies as a man your priorities. A lot of the bullshit you were doing and is this like, wait, wait, I'm going to die right now. Is this, is this how I want to die? Welcome to the Heart of Man podcast, a podcast for any man seeking to live in alignment with his deepest core and lead a life of profound meaning and connection. I'm your host, Alex Lehman, and I'm here to empower you through transformative conversations, eye-opening insights, and practical wisdom. Join me now as we venture into the heart of man. Let's dive in. Kurt Blackson is a renowned inspirational speaker, teacher, transformational coach, and the host of the popular podcast, Soul Talk. He's also the author of the national best-selling books, You Are the One and The Magic of Surrender. Born in Ghana, West Africa, Kurt's life was profoundly shaped by his multicultural upbringing as a child of a Japanese mother, a Ghanaian father. Growing up in London as the son of a revered spiritual leader of more than 300 churches, Kut began to speak in front of large audiences by the age of eight. At the ripe age of 14, he was ordained as a minister by his father and was announced to be his successor. In his heart, however, he knew that this wasn't the path that was set out for him. At 17, he humbly confessed to his father that it wasn't his desire to become a minister, causing a lasting rift within their relationship. At his core, Kut had a desire to move to America, to live at the heart of the personal development scene amongst the many spiritual mentors he grew up reading about. At 18, with two suitcases and $800 in his bank account, he set out for his dream to America cultivating a deeply spiritual life along the way. Today, Kut's mission is simple, to awaken and inspire people globally, guiding them to inner freedom, authentic living, and fulfilling their true life's purpose. Widely regarded as the next generation leader, Inc. Magazine calls him the mindfulness guru billionaires go to for advice. He's also the youngest member to have been voted into the Transformational Leadership Council, a select group of 100 of the world's foremost authorities in the personal development industry. Kut profoundly impacted my own journey, something I shared with him in the conversation. When I learned he'd be in Bali for his final retreat on the island, I knew I wanted to come together for this unique opportunity. Now for all of you listening, get ready because this conversation is on fire. Kut's inspiration, devotion to truth, and unapologetic approach shine through every sentence, leaving deep impressions through numerous moments of the conversation. Within this interview, we delve into the challenges modern men face, from letting go of our father's approval, the importance of grieving, recognizing that no one will save you, the importance of building a relationship with death, what men need to know about relationships and the importance of embracing a life of integrity. Among the numerous interviews I've done by now, this is without a doubt 
one of my favorites and a conversation that I myself will come back to. Without further delay, let's dive into the conversation with Kud and me. All right, everybody, welcome you to another episode at the Heart of Man. Uh, today, I have a very special treat for all of you. Uh, I got a very special guest here. Um, he has had an absolute profound impact in my own life. He's an inspirational speaker, teacher, transformational coach, and the author of the national best-selling books, You Are the One, The Magic of Surrender. Coot Blackson, I welcome you to the Heart of Man. Thanks for having me. It was interesting because 2019, that's when I first heard about you. And at that time, I was doing a world trip. And uh, I was in Cape Town at the moment. I was already traveling for around nine months. And it was interesting because I was experiencing all these highlight reels. And yet at the same time, what was really true for me is I was lost. I was really unsure. Um, this trip was really, I really set out this trip because traveling had such a profound impact on me. And yet um, I had this deep desire to get to know myself at my essence and as well what I'm here to do. And at that time, I was really, I felt like I was getting lost and chasing the highs in like the highlight reels and like chasing for new experiences. And at the end, I noticed that none of that ever gave me those lasting feelings of joy and happiness that I was really desiring. And it was at that time when I listened to an interview you did with um, Tom Bilyeu at Impact Theory. And it was, it was incredible because that interview, it, it pierced me through my heart, you know, and there was something about the things that you said and the energy behind the words that left me weeping afterwards because I could feel there was something behind what you were saying that I was looking for, that I was seeking. And it was interesting because I had already booked uh, my tickets to Nepal in India. So next day I got your book, You Are the One. I started reading that where you're sharing all these encounters uh, during your time in India. And it was something about that that kind of gave me the signposts of where to look. And ultimately, I really, that to me was the start of my spiritual journey and really starting to look within. So I just really wanted to thank you for the profound impact that you had on me. I'm on it. <laughs> to me, you have one of the most unique origin stories that I've ever heard of. And I, I would love for you to actually share your origin story with our listeners to hear a little bit about, yeah, how your parents came together, but then as well your upbringing. Wow. Wow. Um, we could be here for like five podcast episodes, <laughs> five hours, you know, like uh, do a mega uh, podcast marathon. I'd be down for that. <laughs> Let's go. So uh, I was born in Ghana, West Africa. My father's from Ghana. My mother's Japanese. I grew up in London, um, live in the US now and partly Mexico. And so I feel like I'm from everywhere and nowhere. And as a young boy, um, it was a source of pain for me because I never felt like I fit in anywhere. You know, I didn't feel like I was, I'd go to Ghana and I was teased for being a foreigner. And you know, it was lovingly, but teased. So I never felt like I fit in, into the Ghanaian culture. Um, go to Japan, obviously I looked a bit different, even though people would think, but you kind of look like your mother, but you don't exactly look the same and the skin tone is different. So I never felt Japanese, even though I could speak fluent Japanese. And then in the UK, where I grew up till I was 18, I never felt like I was British. And so um, this, I would say, drove me at a very young age 
to, I would say it drove me on the spiritual path because it forced me to start questioning, like, who the hell am I? And if I'm not, like, am I black? Am I Japanese? Am I British? Am I, what, what am I? And who am I? Which is really the ancient question, you know, the, the ultimate question, who am I truly? Um, and through that process of questioning, I would say that, that, that took me deep as a young man. And, uh, you know, my first memories as a young boy was seeing a crippled woman crawl. This is around age six, seven, eight, a crippled woman crawling on the floor. She picks up the gravel, the sand that this man walks on, wipes it on her face and stands up. And so, uh, week after week, I grew up seeing these miracles. And some people would say, cool, you had a very unusual childhood. But for me, it didn't feel that unusual. My, I thought my childhood was quite ordinary. I thought everyone experienced what I experienced. So I think that was one of the blessings because I didn't think anything special about these so-called miracles that I was seeing. Sometimes people would say, come on, man, was, was it real? Was it a scam? Did you really see that? You were, were you hallucinating? The thing is, week after week, I grew up seeing this man who Sanchi picked up, look at a woman in a wheelchair and say, why are you in this wheelchair? Stand up. You're not sick. Like, stand up. Do you believe? And they would have this negotiation for a few minutes and eventually this woman would stand up out of the wheelchair. A person would come in with crutches and he would say, throw your crutches away. You're not sick. And he would touch them and they would start walking. And I didn't think anything special about this. So I grew up, I think a blessing was, with a sense of possibility, with a sense that anything was possible. There were no limitations to in the universe. This man was my father. Uh, my father was a very spiritual man. He was a mystical man. Um, I called him an, Afri an African Siddha in that, you know, from the Indian tradition. He would, you know, in the ancient Indian tradition, Siddhas would give a blessing called Shaktipat. And my father was given the equivalent, you know, in the sort of Christian tradition. He would touch people. They'd fly across the room, have kind of Kundalini awakenings, talking in tongues, speaking in languages. And, and so my father was a very mystical man. He was a very spiritual man, very metaphysical man. He went to India in the 60s, in the 70s, no, in the 60s, and had his own kind of awakening and enlightenment experience. But because he had 300 churches in the Christian tradition, he came back and he kept his churches. But his spiritual philosophy really evolved. It moved out of the sort of orthodox Christian paradigm to a mystical uh, understanding of Christ, not as a person, but Christ as a consciousness and as a consciousness with which we can all access, you know, we can all realize our true nature. When we, when we realize our true nature, we inherently tap into the Christ that is within us. And so my father was very mystical, you know, and his whole sort of spiritual understanding became less about like Jesus floating from the sky, but the true second coming is when you realize who you really are, when you awaken to your true divine nature, that is when the Christ is awakened within you. So I think a blessing was I grew up in a very spiritual, mystical tradition, going to church every Sunday, seeing these miracles, and my mother being Japanese, grew up in the Buddhist tradition, and so I grew up meditating with my mom and, and chanting different Buddhist meditations as a young kid. And so uh, this, was, this was how I grew up. So age eight, uh, my speaking career began. I wish it was, I wish I could say I was this sort of prodigious, you know, prodigy, prodigy child. Then uh, to be honest, I was bored of church. So I would play soccer every Sunday 
in the lobby of my father's church and this didn't go over too well so they put me on the front row and put two bodyguards next to me and I'm eight years old and I was sleeping in the church one Sunday and all of a sudden I get a tap on the shoulder and I'm told that your father's calling you on stage so they threw me on stage and my father said you're going to give the sermon you're going to speak today and I didn't really know what was happening all I knew was in that moment, I looked around and there was about 4,000 people in the audience. My mind went blank and words started coming out of my mouth. And that began my speaking career. It was like, I don't say channeling because that sounds a bit woo-woo, but right. I was a vessel at, at, at eight years old. And that began a journey also, a journey of questioning, like, what is this? What is happening to me? What is going on? And so um, as a young boy from that moment, I would sneak into my father's office in his church, and he had literally a thousand books on his bookshelf. Everyone from, we're talking uh, Krishnamurti, we're talking Osho, we're talking Gurdjieff, we're talking Blavatsky, we're talking uh, Ramana Maharishi, Nisargadatta Maharaj, right? The Eastern mystics, to um, Uspensky, to Wayne Dyer, Louis Hay, Deepak Chopra, Tony Robbins, Zig Ziglar, they were all on his bookshelf. So as a young boy at eight years old, after this speaking experience I wanted to try to understand what is happening I feel something is happening to me and something happens through me and so I began uh, stealing the books from his bookshelf and I began devouring these books and for me that was my life so for me I, I would basically go to school come home on my way home I'd be reading books on the train you know from 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 the train station to uh, to, to my home I'd be reading books walking and come home, do my homework as a young boy. And then I would uh, read for four or five hours every night. And this was, my, this was my passion. So for me, personal growth and spirituality as a young kid, this was my life. This was like everything for me. And so- Tell me, what was that like as well in like relationship as well to your peers and then growing up as a small child? I mean, that already is a very unique upbringing in the sense that, that you was, already- it was, it, was, it was interesting because I felt like I never really fit in. Uh, it, and, and it's, it's strange because I felt like I had these two lives as a young boy. There was, you know, on Sundays I was preaching on Sundays. Uh, in my teens I was healing on Sundays. Then I'd go to school on a Monday like nothing happened. Right. And I couldn't speak to my peers about it because they, they were more interested in like girls and Playboy and <laughs> cigarettes and experimentation. And okay, we, we had one thing in common with we like soccer. But apart from that, I couldn't tell anyone what, what was happening. And so I remember when I was 10 years old, I bought two things, 11. I bought the Tony Robbins 30-day uh, uh, personal power series, and I was so excited, but I, didn't, I couldn't talk to anyone about it. I saved up $500, bought the entire Jim Rohn set of uh, cassette tapes, couldn't talk to anyone about it. So it, it, it's as though I had two lives. There was my inner life, which was a deep kind of internal exploration as a young man. And then there was my school life. Somehow I navigated it, but I felt, I grew up feeling a bit like an, like an outsider. You know, I grew up feeling like I never quite fit in, even though I got along with everybody. And so I was navigating that. It was, it was, it was a bit challenging where I felt uh, lonely as a kid. You know, it, it got even lonelier when at 14, I was ordained as a minister. Uh, that was a whole nother evolution in my, in my career, where at 14, my father announces one Sunday, my son is taking over my ministry, unbeknownst to me, unbeknownst to my mother, we're on stage, my son is taking over my ministry, he's my successor, the entire audience erupts, 
the word spreads in Africa because he had hundreds of thousands of followers in Africa. Everybody's excited but me. And I knew that this was, you know, that feeling you get when you know that something is not aligned, that feeling you get when you know that something is not quite in sync. And as a young boy, I was too afraid to say anything. My fear was if I spoke to my father and I told him how I felt and I showed him who I was and I expressed my feelings that I'd lose him, I'd lose love, I'd be abandoned, I'd be alone, I'd be outcast. And so I think I allowed fear to hijack my voice and my freedom. Like we often do, you know, we allow fear to uh, prevent us from being who we are. We allow fear to prevent us from speaking our truth. We allow fear to prevent us from following our dreams. And so I said nothing. And at 14, I got ordained, literally, um, and went along with the script. My entire life was basically scripted for me, prepared for me, set out for me by my father. And uh, for four years, I tried desperately to fit myself into a box to become who I thought I needed to be in order to be loved and accepted and became depressed and miserable and unhappy in the process until I turned 18. And that's, that's when, again, everything shifted because at 18, I had to make a decision. I mean, you know the sort of European school system, but uh, you know, I was doing my A-levels. Mm. Um, and then I had to decide, do I go to university or not? So I made a crazy decision. I was like, I'm not gonna go to university because if I wanna help people with life, my vision at that point was I wanna help people with life. Um, I wanted to write books and I wanted to go into the field of personal growth because all of the books I read, the the folks that I read, they were they were impacting people and inspiring people, not through religion, not through the church, but in America. So I got this vision, a sort of a soul guidance to go to America, to go to Los Angeles, to go to California, because this is where all of them lived. Louise Hay, Tony Robbins, Deepak Chopra, Marianne Williamson. They all lived in uh, San Diego and LA. So I thought I wanted, I wanted to go to Los Angeles, come and meet these people, study with these people, go into this field. For me, this was my passion, you know? And so at 18, I felt my soul, an undeniable calling in my soul guiding me to come to the US. And sometimes I think what your soul guides you to do doesn't always make sense to your mind. What your soul guides you to do isn't always convenient. What your soul guides you to do isn't always logical. What your soul guides you to do sometimes make no freaking sense whatsoever. But I really believe that when, when you follow your soul, and you are obedient to your soul, and you don't negotiate with your soul, you will always end up in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing with the right people, even though the path and the route that you take may not be the one that you most expect, you know? And, and I think many times the, the guidance of our soul is not me meant to make sense to the mind. It's not meant to make sense to the logic because it's arising from that deeper dimension than the conditioned mind. You know, the mind is conditioned and only understands past experience. So when we receive this guidance that is arising from the unconditioned dimension of our being, it's not going to make sense to, to the mind. And so I think what we often do as human beings is we negotiate and talk ourselves out of listening to the guidance of our soul because the ego mind is constantly, we're constantly trying to understand well, what does this mean? And how is this going to happen? And how am I going to make it? And how, what will I do? And we're constantly questioning and trying to understand the guidance we're given, given because we mistakenly think, if I can understand this guidance, then 
I can control things. Right. Then I'm going to be safe. And then we talk ourselves out of following the guidance when the guidance says, turn left, turn right, go to Bali, go to India, go to Nepal, make that phone call, you know, quit your job, do that thing, write that book. Well, well how and why? And, and so the constant questioning, which is an effort to to find safety by controlling and understanding is what kind of disconnects us from the follow through and the allowance. And so throughout my life, what I had to learn to do from a very young age, actually, was no question. And for me, more and more, it's just become simply feel, feel an intuitive guidance of my soul. Turn left, turn left. Right. So I Turn right, turn right. This is really interesting, cute, because... So I work with a lot of men and a topic that I often see coming up is this fear of stepping into the unknown and letting go of control. Yeah. There's another theme that I'm hearing out that seems that where I see as well some parallels with some of the clients I work with, which is that fear of disapproval from our fathers, living in our father's shadow, right? And really fearing to step really into our own individuated path. Yeah. Um, I would love for you to speak about that and just Look, I can only speak from my own path. Yes. And from my own path, a man doesn't become a man until he kills his father. Because so long as a man is living for the approval of his father, he will never be free. The little boy in him will always be seeking unconsciously. He can say whatever he wants, but he will unconsciously be seeking the validation and approval of his father unconsciously through his actions, either trying to prove himself to his father in some way, trying to better his father himself in some way, or trying to not be as great as his father in some way because he doesn't want to lose his father's love. And so for me, you know, when I turned 18, that was, that was my initiation into manhood. When I realized, shit, my soul is guiding me in the opposite direction of what my father wants. I knew the consequence of that. And so I had to make a decision. I basically projected into my future. And I saw that I could follow the expected path, the path that my father wants, age 20, age 30, age 40, age 50, age 60. And if I follow that path, I could be successful. But if I don't have myself, if I don't have my soul, if I don't have my integrity, what kind of success is that? You cannot be truly fulfilled and happy living someone else's life, living your father's life. At some point, what I had to realize is my father will die. He will die and I will be here. And when he dies and I'm here and I'm left looking at myself in the mirror, knowing I've lived the life he wanted me to live, how am I going to feel? And so I think there comes a moment to truly be free as a man. You have to be willing to kill your father. You have to be willing to disappoint your father. You have to be, you have to let go of your, you have to... For me, what I had to do is, is live as though my father was dead. And, and I had to make peace with the fact that I would never, possibly never have a relationship with my father again. And that took me years of grieving the relationship with my father. Because when I thought, I'm going to go to America, I'm going to follow my path, I'm going to renounce everything, I'm going to leave the church, renounce everything it was in the making peace with the death of the relationship with my father and the death of the relationship. I had to give up the relationship that I wanted with my father. And in that was a profound grieving and a profound letting go. So that when I finally had at 18, 
the conversation with my father. That was like facing a, a dragon. That was like going into the belly of the beast and claiming my manhood. And I think as men, we have to claim our manhood. No one can give you your balls. No one can hand you your balls. You have to go in and own it, claim it, you know, like, like extract it. And it's like, this is mine. That's part of the initiation of being a man. In an ideal world, as men, when we have boys, we would look at our sons and we would bless them and we would empower them and we would pray for them and we would release them and let them go. But often it's not, it's not that ideal, right? And so I think what I had to do, I'll never forget, I'm 17 and a half years old and I crawl up, literally got myself to crawl up the steps to my father's bedroom to look my father in the eyes, to tell my father, and I knew I would break his heart. I knew he would be disappointed. I knew there would be potential consequences. And I had to look him in the eyes, my greatest fear, and say, Dad, I love you, but I'm not taking over your church. For me, that was equivalent to death. I, I died in that moment. My father simply said, are you sure? It was like silence. I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, are you sure? You know, it was like a test. Yes. And I crawled down the stairs and you would think I'd be happy, but I cried. And I cried for days because I knew what that meant. But I knew that I had to do it. And I think for a man to become a man, he has to go through that initiation, you know? And, and, and from that moment, in a certain sense, my father died to me. My father died. And from that moment, because in a strange way, and it doesn't have to be this way for every man, but I knew I didn't have my father's support. So it's like, what the hell do I have to lose? Hmm. And, and, and something really frees up when you as a man face your father within yourself or directly. And like the guy you wanted the most validation from, you've disappointed, you've broken his heart, you've let him down, you freed yourself from, it frees you up in the world. You know, because in a strange sense, it's like, if I'm no longer looking for the validation from my dad, what the hell am I looking for your validation or your validation or some personal social media's validation? It's like, I, I, I let go of that with my dad. And so there's a, at least for me as a man, there's a tremendous freedom that came from releasing my father. But it came with grief. It took me two years of grieving prior and the moment I had that conversation, I went to my room and I cried and I grieved for, for, for weeks, for weeks. But I knew, here's the thing, I knew I was on the right path. I knew I was on the right path. What made you so sure? It was a knowing. It was, it was a feeling. It was something, it was, bigger, it was bigger than a mood. It's like I felt like I didn't have a choice. I think as humans, we, we all feel that sometimes. But when we deny that, like that, that knowing, when we deny that knowing, that's what makes us sick. When we deny that knowing, that's what makes us depressed. When we deny that knowing, that's what makes us crazy. Like literally, psychologically, psychotic and crazy. I think some people that have illness don't really have mental illness. They have a denial of their soul illness that the energy no longer flows and, and, the, and, and the sort of psyche stops cooperating and so because we're killing off a part of ourselves. 
So for me, it's like I felt like I didn't have a choice. And and I took the leap, man. Mm. And and that was the beginning for me of being a man. And I think, you know, part of being a man is what I realized at a young age is as a man, you have to realize you have to be willing to face the consequences of your actions. Tell me more about that. Many times we don't want to face the consequences of our actions. We want to do shit and want to have the government to save us. We want to do shit. We want daddy to bail us. We want to do shit. We want the government to like bail us out. We want to do stuff and we want to just file bankruptcy. Like, who's, we're the one, we, we, we want to eat that donut and we want to be healthy. doesn't work that way. As men, I think we don't become men until we are willing to take full responsibility for our lives and face the consequences of your actions. So as a young boy, because I let go of my father, and I think this is, this is the, one of the benefits, because I let go of my father, I knew that it was on me. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't him anymore. It was on me. And I think when you're willing to take responsibility for your life, when you're willing to give up any sense of uh, entitlement or, or feeling that life or anyone owes you something, to me, that's a tremendous freedom. And so, uh, yeah, facing the consequences of my, like I got to the point where I was willing to face the consequence of my action. I knew what letting go would mean. I knew that we might never, we might never have a relationship again to go to an extreme end. And I had to make peace with the fact that my conversation with my father might mean I never have a relationship with him again for the rest of my life. And I sat with that and I was willing to face that. In order to free myself and have my life and follow my path, I was willing to face that. And that was the consequence I was willing to face. Now, my father and I, we didn't speak for two years. Mm. Was devastating. I'm curious to hear, what does that practically look like? This, this aspect of letting him go, this aspect of grieving. Because I think if there's one thing that I often see is this avoidance of grieving. Yeah, I think... There is, no, um, there is no letting go without grieving. And I think in our culture, we're often not encouraged to grieve. You know, we're not, we're not encouraged to feel. We're, we're, we're kind of like, oh, you feel some grief? Take a pill. You feel some grief? Go to a music festival. You feel some grief? Eat some food. You feel some grief? Have sex. If whatever it is, distract yourself from the grief. But unless we are willing to feel the grief, we will never be able to truly let go and surrender. Grieving is the pathway and the portal to letting go in authentic surrender. Because we're often afraid to feel the grief because we're afraid that it will never end. If I allow myself to open to the grief, it's going to last forever. So we resist the grief and it lasts forever because we, we, we don't fully grieve. And so the fear of it will last forever. The fear that the feeling and the emotion and the grieving will be so large, so huge that it will break us. We won't be able to manage. We won't be able to cope. Sometimes we also don't allow ourselves to feel the grieving it's kind of a sneaky ego tactic. If I don't allow myself to grieve, then I don't have to really acknowledge that this thing is over. 
that I don't really have to acknowledge this relationship is over. I don't really have to acknowledge that my dad is dead. My mother, my mother is dead. The person has died. I can kind of live in denial. So not acknowledging the grief becomes a kind of strategy of the ego to protect oneself and live in denial. Because if I don't grieve the death of my mother or my father or a person, then I can always kind of have a part of them. I can always stay connected to them and not really process that they're gone, that it's over, right? And so you can't really move on until you grieve because you're still going to carry within your psyche, within your mind, within your heart, within your body, within your biology, within your physiology, within your nervous system, the incomplete energy, feeling, and emotion of what has not been processed. And then the challenge is then we try to move forward into a future, a future life, a future relationship, a future possibility. And then we wonder, why am I not able to open my heart fully to the new relationship? Because we're still carrying the pain and the unresolved shit and grief from the past, right? And so I think we have to have the courage to grieve. It takes, especially as men, you know, we're not taught, like, feel your feelings, you know, like, boys don't cry, be a man, suck it up, especially, exactly. you even see on social media now, be a man, suck it up, don't be a pussy, don't be a sissy, don't be a, like, it's like, wait a second, you know, I think to be a real man, a real man has the courage to be vulnerable and to feel his feelings. Mm -hmm. A real man is willing to embrace the strength that it takes to go into that vulnerability and feel and face himself, face the pain, face the emotion rather than numb it or run from it. It doesn't take true strength to run from your feeling. And so grieving, right? I think that all feelings remain present until we feel them. And when we understand that no feelings last forever, no feeling is permanent, all feelings have a natural cycle. And so grieving has a natural cycle. When we understand that, we're like, ah, oh, okay. And, and, and sometimes you might feel a layer of grief and then that layer of grief dissolves. It doesn't mean the grief is gone. There just might be another layer. Sometimes when we think, when we feel, like, oh, the grief is, I'm still feeling a layer of grief. See, here's a mistake that people sometimes make. They'll say to me, Coot, but I've been feeling my, I've been grieving for, for, for months or years now. And when I find this, many times we think that we are grieving. We think that we're feeling our feelings, but we don't realize that we are more thinking about our feelings and analyzing the feeling of grief rather than truly being present with it and feeling it fully. Perpetuating the story as we, well. We, we're analyzing it. Well, yeah. what is this about and how is this? And we're thinking about the grief rather than truly being present with and feeling the grief. And in thinking about and analyzing the grief, we think that we're feeling it, but we're not truly present with it. Sometimes people even cry and emote, but they're not really present with the grief. Right. They're actually disconnected and the emotion is not truly being present with it. It's kind of an avoidance of like, ah, but they're not present with it. And so what I would invite people to is, first you have to acknowledge the grief. Like, yes, there's grief. And if you can take the label off of the grief, take the label, don't even call it grief because it has so many connotations, and just allow yourself 
to experience the sensation in your body. Don't have to call it grief. Just what, where do I notice this grief on my belly? Where, and, and to just be able to be fully present with the sensation in your body and allow yourself to just experience the sensation in your body without trying to get rid of it, without trying to do some special technique to remove the grief. That's a mistake that sometimes we make. We're like, let me get rid of the grief, right? Let me do some technique and just eradicate it, which keeps it stuck even longer. If we can just take the label off and be present to the sensation in the body and fully welcome it, fully embrace it, fully accept it, fully be with it completely without trying to get rid of it and notice what happens often without any agenda when we're with it fully you'll find that that emotion has a natural cycle and if you can follow that emotion through its natural cycle a layer of that grief will dissolve i remember when my mother uh passed away my mother passed away in 2017 of stomach cancer and she was like the person i loved the most you know um i knew love because of my mom and I remember when she passed, the depths of grief that I felt, I'd never felt anything like this in my life, you know? Um, when the person you love the most is no longer here, it's, it's, it's deep, right? It's another initiation into manhood, another level of manhood. And so when my mother passed away, what I did was I just allowed myself to feel the pain and the grief fully. And I would have like daily grieving sessions, an hour a day, two hours, a day, whatever I needed to just fully give myself permission to feel the waves and the layers of grief. Sometimes that was journaling. Sometimes that was being in nature. Sometimes it was crying. So, and, but what I found was it was as though when I would be with the grief, it was as though my heart broke. My heart would break. But what I found was when my heart would break, it was like, boom, it would break. And then I would be present with that heartbreak without trying to avoid it. When I'd be fully present with the heartbreak, I noticed that my heart wasn't broken. I would notice that the current shape of my heart's capacity to love broke open. So if my heart had this much feeling capacity, it was like through the depth of the grieving process, my heart would break open and I would look and it, oh, it's not broken. It was just broken open. And there was a bigger expansive capacity to feel and a bigger expansive capacity to love. So for me, I found that through the grieving, you find a bigger capacity to loving and if the only way to more loving is through the grieving and there is no way to bigger loving unless you allow yourself to grieve and and so I think that was a beautiful lesson for me you know and and there is a strength that you find as a human as a man through the grief in in, in knowing that you have gone through the grieving and you're still here is a deeper strength than avoiding the grief mm. and resisting the grief. Because if you know I've grieved, 
I've died and I'm still here, expanded, there's a strength in that. Yeah. And so I think it's the grief that is like a fire that can remake us. That's not to mean you wallow in the grief. There's, not the, there's a dif distinction between feeling those feelings and allowing them to move through versus holding on to the grief and using it as a blanket and an excuse to not move forward. So there's a difference. Feeling your feelings fully, allowing them to move through versus holding on to them with a, with a kind of agenda and wallowing and victimhood without any intention of releasing and letting go. How can we make sure that we don't fall into victim mode? We don't fall into wallowing? I think part of it is, is also just understanding your intention. It's like you're being with the grieving. And I think this is something that some, I, I think a reason that sometimes men and humans, us as humans, we don't want to feel the grief because we're like, well, I don't want to feel that because I don't want to feel weak. I don't want to be a victim. Yep. But I think if you understand that all feelings will remain present until you feel them fully. So if you don't feel them fully, you will end up being a victim even unintentionally to the feeling that you haven't felt because you won't be able to fully move on. Mm. And so just understanding that the intention for feeling is not to stay stuck, is to let go. And just that intention. You know, sometimes we don't allow ourselves to feel the grief fully um, because of a spiritual bypass. We end up doing a spiritual bypass, like, oh, I don't wanna, I wanna stay in a high vibration. <laughs> I want to see a you know, law of attraction, high vibration. I, I don't want to acknowledge the grief. I don't want to, no, I'm going to be in a high vibration. But when there's this unresolved energy that we carry with us, we don't realize that what, we're, what we end up doing is attracting people and experiences and situations that correspond to the, also that energetic vibration of the unresolved, unfelt grief that we haven't processed and haven't let go of. Yeah. And there's so much wisdom in just what you shared. And uh, I just want to bring in a personal example out of yeah. my own life just around the relationship of grief and the things that I learned um, as a result of grief. Sure. Uh, one and a half years ago, I came out of a relationship where the feelings of grief were undeniable yeah. and I couldn't avoid those aspects of me any longer. Yeah. And yes, at that time I was met with my own conditioning, with my stories of who to be as a man, don't be a pussy, don't be a sissy, don't be weak, all these things. And I, I really had to come into contact and be intimate with my aliveness, with the experience inside of me. And, and, and really, it was a death to a certain degree because there was still so many childhood <clears throat> conditioning, childhood programming that was showing up in that relationship, the enmeshment with you know, the, the mother figure, the enmeshment with the feminine at that time. And for me, when I started becoming aware of all these elements within the breaking of that relationship, yeah. I had to grieve these aspects of me. I had to grieve my desire to not have my mother suffer, to not be in pain, to want to support her, to want to caretake her. And I had to let that go. Yeah. And the grieving of that, the grieving of the persona and the mask that I was operating in, it actually allowed me deeper freedom, deeper strength to actually show up the way I wanted to. There was something that was incredibly empowering a moment when I was realizing I am not going to continue playing out the mask. And it was the moment when I started expressing my boundaries. It was a moment when I started stepping into 
my nose. And the only way I could truly move through the grief that I was experiencing at that time was to be unwavering with the truth of the moment. I felt grief. I felt shame, internalized shame about who I was. And I can't avoid that anymore. I was working with somebody at the time and I had to own a part of me doesn't really want to live anymore. A part of me hates myself. I was sick of it. I was done. But there was something about owning just that and being with that. There was something about it that was liberating, liberating because I could be with the actual felt experience of that. I could learn to alchemize. I, I could learn to work with it. Nice. And something about that allowed me to move into a more authentic um, expression of myself and really come into a more softer, compassionate um, way of being that was not in denial of my more, let's say, feminine qualities, but actually in embrace of them whilst recognizing the strength that was behind the journey I've had to go through. I, I guess I just wanted to share and, and name that for anybody who may be terrified around this whole relationship to grief and recognize the value, recognize the importance. And I feel like you shared so much around that. Um, and I think, and many, I think many of us are carrying even subtle layers of grief that we, that's unprocessed, that we either are not even aware of or we're not conscious of. You know, dreams that were not fulfilled. Things that didn't work out. You know, needs that weren't met as children. And, 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 you know, some of it's so subtle because some people might say, but my parents were great people. They were wonderful. They were amazing. They didn't beat you. Like, it, it's a bit easier when, you, when if, if you have a situation where it's obvious. Yes. Your dad beats you with a baseball bat every day. It's like, well, yeah, I have some grief. But sometimes your parents were amazing. They're great. They loved you. They fed you. They clothed you. They were kind to you. But maybe this, they, they didn't know how to meet your emotional needs. And, and that was kind of painful. But you didn't even know it was painful because that's all you knew as a child, right? And so we don't even know what we don't know. And we don't even know what we're missing in a situation like that. To not have needs met and to not feel the emotional connection with a parent when that's all we know. And we don't even know that there's something missing inside of us that we're feeling. And there can even be a subtle level of grieving of that that we're not even conscious of. Mm -hmm. And so I, I would ask everyone just to sit with, what have you not allowed yourself to grieve? Sometimes it's something from childhood. Sometimes it's moving to a new phase of life. Sometimes it's moving from 20s to 30s and 30s to 40s where you as a, ma as a man, you realize, shit, I'm not 20 years old anymore. Shit, I'm like, I'm 40. I'm 35. I'm 40. I'm not, like, I'm going to die soon. And it, it, it's, it's the end of youth, right? When you realize, oh, wow, that's another stage and a dimension to move through as you move through the portal of another phase of your life, right? Um, in a strange way. You know, when I got married, right, uh, I was a bachelor for many years, uh, living a good life, right? I had to grieve the end of singleness. I had to grieve the end 
of being a single man in the world, doing whatever I want, whenever I want, with whoever I want, you know, it's just, I had to grieve that. And, and interest, there was a part of my psyche that even was resisting that. And there was a layer of grief there that I had to acknowledge. You might say, well, it's a beautiful thing. You met your wife, you got married, this is amazing. It's amazing. But if I wasn't aware and didn't allow myself to grieve the end of a phase of my life, a phase of just thinking about myself and my needs and my wants and my desires, I would not have been able to fully be present in the relationship with my wife presently right now with my son in a whole different phase. And I think many times as men, we don't allow ourselves to grieve that so that we end up in a relationship and we're like, I wish I was, I wish I was single again. I wish I was because we still haven't truly let a phase of ourselves go, a part of ourselves go. So I had to let a part of myself die in a beautiful way. And through that grieving was another level of maturation, another level of emotional development for me as a man, another level of maturation as a husband, as a father, which has a whole nother dimension of richness and fulfillment and beauty than when I was running around as a single man by myself. You know, so I think some, some of it is some of the grief we don't even realize that we need to grieve. Because I didn't even realize I needed to grieve the end of a phase of my life. I, I was just entering a new relationship and there was a bit of internal resistance inside of me as a man because like an old identity and a new identity and a new way of being. And so when I really allowed that grieving of a phase of my life, it enabled me the capacity to show up even more fully with my wife in this new phase. Mm. You've been sharing where you've been talking about death a few times here yeah. and dying. Share with us the importance of building a relationship to death. Why is that important, especially well, as a man? Well, we will all die. You are going to die. I'm going to die. Everyone will die. It is unavoidable. There is no way out. Jesus died, Buddha died, Muhammad Ali died, Bruce Lee died, Mandela died. You're going to fucking die. Period. Now, I know there's a lot of biohacking now and you want to live forever. You ain't going to live forever. This body in this physical form will die. It will erode. It's fact. I think the more we can make peace with that, the freer we are. Because I think as humans, we're so afraid of dying. We want to live for it. We're so afraid of dying that we live in fear. And when we're so afraid of dying, we don't fully allow ourselves the boldness of living because we're afraid of dying. But I think as men, we have to face death. And so I would say, there's a few things I want to say. I would say, face your death. Look it in the face, sit with it like, going to die it's inevitable dying right now every breath is happening it's close to death because i think when you can live with death close it, it, it kind of clarifies as a man your priorities 
a lot of the bullshit you were doing and is this like we're, we're, I'm gonna die right now. Is this, is this how I wanna die? Watching porn? Is this how I wanna die? Hanging out with on this date? Is this how I wanna die? Surfing the internet? Is this how I wanna die? Living in fear? And so I think when when the reality of death is close, it brings you into the moment, a present moment relationship with what's really important. And as a man, it starts to focus you on what's important because you realize, I don't have forever. When you're young and you're a little boy, you're like, I have forever. But when, when you face death, you start realizing how precious every moment is. I don't have forever. This physical incarnation, I'm mortal. So how do I want to use the time that I have to live my purpose fully so that when death comes, I have no regrets? And so I think death, I don't see death as a, as a morbid thing. I see death as a tremendous friend. I see death as a tremendously freeing reality to the nature of life. There's no life without death and no death without life. It's just the nature of things. So as a man... Feel your death, face your death, feel it. Hold it close. Every moment, I'm like, wow. You know, now I have a son. I'm like, and I feel my death. Shit gets real. The things I used to do, and I didn't waste much time before, but now the reality of death, having a son is like, every moment is precious. Could you wanna go hang out? No. Do you want to go? No. Because that time, like, there's no refund. When you die and you meet your maker, you can't go to God and say, God, can I get a refund on that, 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 that weekend I spent hanging out doing I'm not sure what? It's like, it's gone, right? So I think death brings you into relationship with what's really important, focuses you, at least gives the potential to have you focus more on living your purpose and what's real rather than sort of, dilly-dallying and wasting your time now i think as men <clears throat> since this is a heart of man this one might be more for the guys but ladies if you're listening you might um relate in some way because we all have masculine and feminine inside of us but i think as men as the masculine there is a a a inherent drive for freedom that is a masculine impulse innate masculine impulse that is an innate drive for freedom and as men as masculine there is a search for freedom the challenge is as men we mistakenly seek freedom in the world if I can make a billion dollars, nothing wrong with it. If I can make a billion dollars, then I'm going to be free. If I can drive that Lamborghini, then I'm going to be free. If I can date as many women as possible and have sex with as many women as possible, then I'm going to be free. And so in many ways, we're mistakenly seeking freedom in the world and what we have to realize is there is no freedom in the world the world is impermanent the world is finite the world is limited we live in a world of three-dimensional 
3D duality, interdependent polaric opposites, that's the nature of life. We live in the realm of limitation. So as men, this deeper impulse for freedom, we seek it in the world, but we, we, we can't really find it in the world. Which is why often we end up dissatisfied. Which is why sometimes as men, we are afraid to truly commit in relationship because we mistakenly think that relationship with one woman or one person is going to be a limitation on my freedom. But it's a mistake. There is no freedom in the world. What we as men have to realize is that the true source and dimension of freedom is within us. The kingdom of heaven is within. It doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is in a Lamborghini or a mansion. <laughs> the kingdom of heaven is within you. Jesus said it, not me. And he knew that was one free man. That was a free dude. And so what we have to realize is the freedom that we're seeking is the freedom that we are. The freedom that we're seeking is our very nature. Our very nature is freedom. But we lost touch with that freedom from conditioning from childhood. So now we're seeking it out here. We're never going to find it. And so I think the reason I think death and the topic of death is important. The degree to which we as men believe that we are simply this mind, body, ego, mechanism and structure. Alex Ku, this body, is the degree to which we will, we will be bound by the limitation of the ego in this body. And then the degree to which we will continue seeking freedom out there. It's only when we die, or I should say spiritually die, ego die, when we, it's only when through a spiritual practice, let's say, when we die to the illusion of ourself as this ego, mind, body, limitation form and realize the infinite nature of our being as divine, as consciousness, which is eternally free, which is always free, which is beyond death, beyond birth, which is freedom itself. Until we truly connect to that, inner dimension of freedom that we are as men, we will never be free. That requires a death. And so I think as men, it's tremendously important to have a spiritual practice, a true spiritual practice where you are transcending yourself or your perceived sense of limited sense of self that we tend to identify with as ego form. What would that look like as men? Like what kind of spiritual Let, practice? Let's just simplify as in meditation. All right. You know, in meditation, true meditation, not an app listening to a guided visualization meditation. Because the ego always wants to do something. The job of the ego is to protect you from getting hurt. And the job of the ego is to reinforce his existence. So the ego is constantly seeking to reinforce his existence. Look at me. I look good. Look at me on social media. Look at me. Oh, let me do some med meditation. Spiritual the, the sneakiest place that the ego hides is in spiritual practice. Because the ego doesn't want to sit there and die. It wants to do something. So it wants the meditation where it can do some sexy technique and be so involved because it can do something. It wants to be the doer. So in a spiritual practice where you are transcending your sense of identity and self, 
where you are going beyond yourself, where effectively you are dying to the self that you have been conditioned to believe that you are. And I think it's in that that you are dying to yourself. Then you become dead. To me, the most alive man is a man that is dead. Because when you are dead to the limited self, ego self, that you have mistakenly believed yourself to be as a man, then you awaken to the freedom of your being, which is that divine essence, the God within you, uh, that is always eternal. That's when you become a God-man. That's when you're free. Because when you know you're not just this body, you're not just this ego, and whatever you've been holding on to for a sense of you, you know that if that dies, your beliefs, your ideas, your paradigms, your thoughts, your you know concepts, when, when everything that you thought was you dies and you let that go because you know that that is, no, that is not who you really are, it frees you. Then you're not afraid to die because you know that whatever can die is not you. And that's the profound freedom to live in the world already dead already dead so that when someone says well, I don't like you well I'm dead already I'm going to reject you I'm dead already even as it as it relates to relationship if you as a man have already see see for men relationship is death it's fucking death your ego has to die in the temple of relationship in the fire of relationship in the temple of her heart it has to die which is why many times, as men, we fall in love, we run into relationship, I love you, oh my God, ah, and then we run the fuck away. Because we, we're like, oh shit, this is a good woman. I'm going to die in this one, and we run. This is why women always say, why, do, why did we get so close? And then he just disappeared, because he saw his death in your heart. It's kind of a compliment to a woman, but it's not fun. right? But if a man is already dead, he is dying to himself. Mm. Then, 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 through his spiritual practice, he's already dead. Then he's not afraid to commit because he knows that the parts of himself that will have to die in a relationship, that will have to die in the pursuit of his purpose, is not really who he is. So he's not afraid of dying. That's the freedom. Mm. <laughs> and so it's only through death that you're free to live that you're free to love, that you're free to be, that you're free to freaking give your gifts to the world because the world will, will, will beat you down. The world, the world killed Jesus. Bro, the world killed Jesus. <laughs> the world killed Gandhi. The world killed Mandela. You and I, we're still alive. We have it easy, right? So we have to realize when we put ourselves out into the world, it ain't gonna be easy. So if we're holding on to our ego sense of self that wants to look good and what are people going to think and it's going to inhibit our capacity to share our gifts to the world because we're afraid. The ego, which is the thing that is afraid to die that we mistakenly believe ourselves to be, is made up of past experiences, traumas, hurts, successes, belief structures that we hold on to. And that's what we've been conditioned to believe that we are but we're not. That's what must die. 
So, so when we truly die in that sense, that's when we become truly alive. Well, I, I think I've, I've just been smiling for the last 20 minutes, just hearing about death and hearing you speak about that. You've kind of been speaking and directing us towards the topic of relationship. Sure. And sure. I would like to hear a little bit more about what challenges do you see with men in relationship and how can we support our brothers? I think some of the things I just shared. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. To understand that commitment is freedom. Commitment is true freedom. And freedom is love. And love is freedom. At two sides of the same coin. And I think a lot of men mistakenly, as I mentioned, believe that love and commitment is limitation. That's why I think love is a spiritual practice. I think as a man, as, as humans, as men, I think if we can understand the love relationship is ultimate spiritual yoga. You can go to India and the Himalayas and sit there and meditate. I'm so free, bro. <laughs> I feel so free, bro. Right? I went to India, went to Nepal, went to Bali, went to Mexico. It's like... Did my ayahuasca, I'm free. Then you fall in love with a woman that you love will see how free you are. Because <laughs> that's when all the shit comes up. That's when all of the stuff is like, because a woman will test you. A, a, a real, a really beautiful, good woman will test you unconsciously and push and prod. Not intentionally, often unconsciously and just... Love will test you. Love will bring up all of those places inside of you that are unresolved. You can't hide in love. And so if a man can understand that, this is good. Because what many times we want to do as men is like, I want to be free. Let me, let me, let me like escape. Hmm. Rather than say, okay, let, let, me, let me lean into this and embrace this and sit in the fire of love and burn. Let me burn. Love is death. And if you are in a relationship and you ain't dying, it's the wrong relationship. If you're in a relationship and it's like la-di-da-di-da and a real relationship, you will burn. Doesn't mean suffer. Doesn't mean pain. But you, parts of you will have to die. And if you can understand that, they, then you can embrace it and develop, develop a relationship with it and go through that process through, through your inner work and your spiritual practice. And so I think when we, can, when we can see relationship also not as a distraction from our spiritual path, but as an enhancement of our spiritual path. When we can see relationship not as a distraction from our spiritual path, but as men see relationship as a spiritual path and perhaps the greatest evolutionary accelerator of your spiritual path as a man. Because in relationship with a good woman, you will not be able to hide. In India, in the Himalayas, by the Ganges, you can fucking hide. Right? In Bali, in the rice fields, you can freaking hide. 
in an ayahuasca ceremony, you can hide. But with a good woman, in relationship, you can't hide because she will feel those places inside of you. She will sniff those places out. She will, she will extract that stuff from, she will know things about you before you know it yourself because this is part of the energetic gift of the feminine. So you can't hide in relationship with a good woman. You can say, I feel free. I, you know, I, 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 I've resolved my, my issues with my dad and my anger issues. She'll know and she'll sniff it out. A good woman, you will not be able to bullshit. Because she'll have an energetic vibrational, multidimensional sixth sense that is beyond the physical. Where she'll just sense it. And she'll be able to give you feedback. So as a man, I would say, if you're with a woman you love, if you're with a woman that you trust, listen. Have the humility to listen to her feedback. Listen to her energy. Observe her energy and how she responds. Listen to what she tells you. Because even though maybe she might not tell it to you in the way you want to hear, there's probably some truth behind it that if you're willing to listen to, what she said will accelerate your evolution. Meanwhile, what we tend to want to do is like, let me go meditate, when what she said is the very thing that will actually dissolve something in your ego if you're willing to face what's being reflected to in a relationship. So relationship is a mirror. Relationship is a profound path. So I think as men, if we don't see relationship as a limitation, you know, run from it or as a restriction on our freedom, but as a, as a spiritual path itself, I think through relationship, we can evolve, evolve actually much more quickly. Mm. Beautiful. So I would say men choose wisely. <laughs> Absolutely. Choose wisely. Cool. You mentioned your son. Yeah. I'm curious to hear... What has the transition into fatherhood been teaching you? Wow. In so many ways, nothing. In so many ways, everything. <laughs> um, what I would say is... I'll say it this way. It's not strictly accurate, but it's how I experience it. A man doesn't become a man until he becomes a father. Now, there's lots of men that aren't fathers, and there's lots of men that are real men that aren't fathers, you know. But a man doesn't become a man until he becomes a father. Now, there might be other ways to experience that, but there's something about becoming a father that is different because there's no hiding. There's no running away. You can't just sell your child off like you can sell a car. You can't just, like, give your dog away, you know. It's like, oh, I give my child away. It's like, you're... It, it's, this kid is stuck with you and you got to face yourself in this kid for the rest of your life. Your dog doesn't behave how you want it to. You can deal with that. But your kid is different. So for me, a man doesn't become a man until he has a child. The reason I say that is because when you have a child, as a man, now you are profoundly responsible for a life and your life is no longer about yours anymore men that live life like it's all about them fair enough you can but i think to truly go through the initiation of fatherhood you begin to 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 it's another death it's another ego death 
because prior to fatherhood, I was like, kind of just have myself to think about. You know, now it's like everything I do has to get filtered through. How will this affect my son 18 years from now? And what, what life do I want to give my son? Where do I want to move? Before, where do I want to move? I want to move to Miami for a year. I'm gone to Miami. I'm going to move here for a year. But now it's like, how will moving here affect my son and my son's future? So it's not just about me anymore. So in a sense, you could say becoming a father is a profoundly deep ego purifier. Because now it's, it's not, the focus isn't, just what a coop what does coop want it's how will this affect generations to come how will my financial decisions now affect my son and generations to come and so it's forced me to think broader and bigger and more expansive for generations to come whereas prior to that it's like well let me i can just think about myself and what I want to buy today, what do I want to, what, 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 what do I want to eat today, where do I want to go this year? Now it's like, it's not just my life anymore. And it's an adjustment, but it's a profoundly fulfilling maturation that happens, has been happening inside of me, and I think happens inside of every father that truly allows himself to go through that purification and that transformation. Not all, not all fathers do. But I think to become a true man, when now you are responsible for tribe, is part of what it is to be a man. Where you are truly now responsible for more than yourself. It's like a man can't become a king A king is not just responsible for himself anymore. A king is responsible for the kingdom and the well-being of everyone in the kingdom. It's another face. A prince is like, prince can just do whatever they want. But a king has a responsibility to the kingdom. As a father, you have a responsibility to your child. And so for me, it's been beautiful, you know, a, a, a maturation. You know, I kind of joke with my wife and I say it's forcing me to grow up. <laughs> Not that I was a kid before, but, sure. but there's another spiritual dimension, sure. you know, because it's not just, okay, generational wealth. What do I, what do I want to leave him when he's 18 and 20? And, but it's also spiritually in consciousness. You know, what's so amazing is so much of the healing I did over the last 20 years of my life deep healing. My son is the energetic manifestation of the healing I've done. So I get to see my son in the physical form now and I'm like, wow, I'm glad I did the healing because there's, there's such a purity to his being that is the physical manifestation of the work I did. And, and, and so that continues, you know, the, 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 the Real generational wealth is not just what we give them, but it is the consciousness that we live, leave them. And, and so the more I heal, the more I transform, the more I elevate, the more I expand, the more he receives the transmission of that consciousness, you know? And so it's, it's, it's a deep thing. 
for a man. I'm not saying you can't do without a child, but for a man, for for a man, you know, something's different. And and you know, I I would say that you know, kids are so smart that they watch you and they copy. And as a man, you know, I always lived with a tremendous integrity and living by example. But for me, it's now taken that to another level. Because now, because I see my son looking at me, he's six months old. <laughs> he's looking. I'm like, damn, he's like following, looking, observing. So now it puts another level of intention on who am I being? And how do I need to live my life in such a way so that my embodiment and my example is the teaching to him? Because he is watching. Mm. Our children are watching us as men. It's mm. profound. So, so there's another level of intentionality now with how I live and how I show up and the example that I'm setting. Mm. Because that's how he's going to ultimately learn, not just what I tell him to do or read this book. But now it's, it's real because I'm seeing his response and his interaction and him watching me. And so, yeah, it's interesting. Powerful, yeah. powerful. <clears throat> One more question before we wind down with sure. the conversation, uh, which is, I'm curious to hear, as you raise your son, what would you like him to know about what it means to be a man? And with what kind of understanding would you like to assist him as he moves into the world? Wow. Um, I think everything I've shared, one thing I would say is, is, you know, I think integrity as a man is important, as a human being is important. But uh, to me, integrity, which is really living in alignment with your soul, to always honor your soul. First, that he is a soul. We are souls. We are souls, we've incarnated into this human experience in order to learn, to grow and evolve. And to truly live in integrity with your soul. That is like my greatest wish for him. To never compromise your soul. And to live in integrity with your soul. And don't compromise your soul for me or anybody. Because your soul, your soul, his soul, our souls. Our souls know more than anything and anyone. And, and so for me, part of it is to, as much as possible, push him and encourage him to uncompromisingly follow his soul. He does that, I will always back him up. I don't care what it looks like. You follow your soul. And that your soul will never guide you wrong. And, and so living in integrity, you know, I think as human beings, you mentioned something about it, but I, th I think in many ways we're constantly lying to ourselves in order to fit in, in order to have the world love us, in order to get validation, in order to be popular, right? But in life, as men, we have two things. You have your reputation. We do this podcast interview. Thousands of people see this interview. Someone's going to like me. Someone's not going to like me. It is the way it is. I'm not under any illusion. It's the way it is. Someone's going to be like, I don't like this kook guy. Fine. Someone's going to be, I love this kook guy. Fine. That's reputation. That's what people think about you. 
It's reputation. You can't really control your reputation. You can't control how people perceive you really. But at the end of the day, as a man, you have your character. Your character is when you go at home, when you go home at night, 2 a.m. in the morning, you wake up, you look in the mirror, and nobody's around, no social media, no Instagram, no nothing, and you're with yourself. How do you feel within yourself, in your own heart, in your own soul, in your own body, as a human and as a man? And can you be at peace with that? If you cannot be at peace with that, I don't care what you have in the world, you are not free. If you can say, yes, I can be at peace with who I am, you are free. That is freedom. To me, that is to be a true man, an authentic man, a real man, when you can be at peace within yourself. Look yourself in the mirror and, and, and say, yeah, I respect who I am. I know who I am. I respect who I am. I'm not compromising who I am. You can live in alignment with that. You are free. You will trust yourself. And people will trust you because how you live your life and how you feel inside and the actions, your words, your feelings, your actions line up. And so I think as human beings, because of the ways we've been conditioned, we're constantly lying to ourselves about who we are. You know, and it starts from childhood, right? We, we, we suppress our feelings so that we don't have to, oh, it doesn't really hurt. I, I, I don't really care that dad's not around or we become we develop a role and a mask and a persona and we become who we think the world wants us to be in order to be loved and validated wonder why we're not happy and so I think the more we can be true and honest with ourselves so I would invite folks listening I think as men what lies am I telling myself Sit with the question, what, what, what lies am I telling myself? What am I lying to myself about? What am I bullshitting myself about? What, what am I not being honest about? As human beings, we're constantly lying to ourselves. We stay in a relationship that we know, we know is not right. We work jobs that we know is not our purpose. We betray ourselves and say yes when we mean no in order to feel comfortable, make other people feel comfortable, and wonder why we don't feel aligned inside. We don't feel good inside. We feel pain inside. When we lie to ourselves, it's meant to be painful. When we lie to ourselves, it's not meant to feel good. It's not meant, we're not meant to feel great. You eat shit, it's meant to taste terrible. You lie to yourself, it's not meant to feel good. So that pain that we feel as humans is often a sign that we're not living in integrity somehow. But what we've tended to do is we drink it away, smoke it away, drug it away, sex it away, shop it away, social media it away, just to distract ourselves from the pain. But the pain is a gift. The pain is a blessing. The pain is feedback. So I would say acknowledge the pain. Seek the message of the pain as course correction. What lies am I telling myself? Feel it. Tell the truth. I think the more we're willing and able to tell ourselves the truth, the freer we are. Truth for me is real spirituality. Truth is real yoga. Truth is real meditation. Truth is real medicine. Truth is real prayer. Truth is what it is. Because if we're bullshitting ourselves as humans and as men, and we go to the temple to pray, it's like, God, help me with my relationship. God's, God's going to be like, get out of here, man. 
Go home, sit down, tell the truth, come back. Because much of the issues we're dealing with would resolve if we told the truth to ourselves. The truth might sound like, I hate my job. No more pretending. I'm not in love anymore. Great. I have an alcohol problem. I have an alcohol problem. Say it. Own it. I'm not happy. Own it. You can't change something if you're honest about where you're at. And all transformation starts with the truth. So if there's one thing that people can do from this conversation is start telling yourself the ruthless, radical truth. And so what I would wish for my son is that he's true to himself no matter what. Because then he will be free and he will be at peace and he will respect himself. And likely, if he lives in alignment with that, the rest will take care of itself. Beautiful message for your son and our listeners. Thank you so much, Keith. I want to start winding down. Sure. Um, thank you, first of all, for your presence, um, for your energy, for all the wisdom that you shared and for our listeners. Um, where can our listeners find you? And I would love as well to just provide the space for you just to share anything that you want our listeners to know about. Um, I would say people can check out the book, The Magic of Surrender. Uh, here it is. Camera. Yeah, there it there is. we go. Magic, Ma surrender. Magic of Surrender right there. Uh, this book was written from my soul with a lot of love. Um, has many keys and codes in there, so buy it on Amazon. Um, <clears throat> let's see. People can go to Instagram, Coop Blackson. Uh, Facebook, Coop Love Now. Say hi there. My podcast, Soul Talk. Uh, that's a weekly podcast that I put out. Uh, people can go to my website, cootblackson.com, K-U-T-E, cootblackson.com. Enter your name and your email to receive a free three-part video training series on how to find your purpose. Um, I'm launching a lot of new uh, events and seminars and projects next year in 2024. So if people go to the website, they can find out more and find out about my, my events there. Wonderful. Um, absolutely make sure as well just to add all that in the show notes. Um, is there anything that you want to share about the Boundless Bliss Breakthrough Experience? Depending on when this, this interview comes out, but yeah. uh, look, this December the 5th through the 16th, 2023, if someone, if this is out before then, uh, for the last 12 years, I have done 21 Boundless Bliss Bali's. Uh, Boundless Bliss is a 12-day experiential immersion seminar in Bali. It's unlike anything on the planet, to be honest. It's not a typical retreat. Most retreats in Bali, you come, you go to the rice fields, you drink some coconuts, you meet a few shamans, you go, you go to a few waterfalls and, you know, have a lovely time. Then you go back home, nothing changes. For me, what I do is I, I unplug people from the, from the world and we go on a deep inner journey. And it's a journey you're facing yourself. It's an inner journey of facing your fears. It's an inner journey of dealing with the patterns of your conditioning. And what I really do in 12 days, I create a process that is designed to help free you. And a process that is designed to help you connect with your authentic nature and kind of catapult you forward into living life. So it's a really profound 12-day process. Uh, this December, the 5th through the 16th, is uh, the final one I'm going to do in Bali ever. Number 22. Uh, so in case someone hears it before then, might be a day or two left to apply. Uh, you can go to www.boundlessblissbali.com. Thank you so much, Coot. Thank you. This has been absolutely incredible. Um, before we close down, I just want to offer you one last question in one to two sentences. 
Um, so this podcast is called The Heart of Man. And one of the reasons why I called it The Heart of Man is because for most of my life, I lived in disconnection from my own heart. And now I feel like that's really been a journey that I've been on for the last few years to really connect back to my own and really come into an understanding what's inside the heart of man. So I'd love to um, bring a bit of an understanding of what drives you at your deepest core and what is moving you in your own heart. Wow. Um, for me, what's always driven me is love. Um, love for people, love for God, love for people, love for humanity. Um, I love humanity. And part of my vision is to help humanity wake up to who we really are, which is not this physical form, you know, beyond this illusion of separation, that ultimately we're one. And so I feel for me, part of my mission is to bring humanity together uh, being from different cultures and different traditions, Japan, Africa, it's like, I want the world to know that we're one. We're one consciousness. We're one spirit. We're one energy. We're being lived and breathed by the same intelligence, you know, and to help people remember who they are. I think when I remember who I am, I remember who you are. We remember who we all are, you know, and I think that's, that's when we're going to have peace is a spiritual awakening, a spiritual realization and so for me that's that's what drives me and uh you could say on some level it's a mission i've been on from a very young age <laughs> and i feel like i'm just getting started so Beautiful. yeah i can definitely feel that in your work thank you all right everybody to all our listeners i just want to thank you for tuning in uh, i hope you got a lot of value from coot and um make sure as well just to check out his work he really does incredible work and i've read both You Are the One and The Magic of Surrender, and I can highly recommend these books. Um, they have absolutely transformed me in so many ways, so feel free to check those out, and I'll make sure as well to add links to those. And uh, until next time, if there's any questions, if you would like to share your insights, if you'd um, like to address anything that you may have picked up through this podcast, feel free to reach out to both of us, and until next time, much love. Thank you for listening to this episode. Your time and attention is truly appreciated. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe to stay tuned for my upcoming episodes. And in case you know somebody who would find this episode helpful, I encourage you to pay it forward. Finally, if you've personally been receiving value from the show, one way you're able to support this podcast is by leaving a five-star rating and a written review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Not only does this help more people find the show, but it also supports me in bringing more incredible guests on for the future. I'm your host, Alex Lehman, and until next time, signing off.